The old lady put her bloody saw down so she could rest. She lit a cigarette and asked which podcast I like best. Well, my favorite podcast is Sometimes Dead is Better. Dead is Better. Sometimes Dead is Better. Hello and welcome to Sometimes Dead is Better. And it's me, Kristen. And me, Chris. And here we are recording a podcast over Zoom. Yes, our first virtual audio podcast. Which is like five months into the quarantine. But <laughs> we thought today, what if <laughs> <laughs> I will stipulate that I'm recording without a like a microphone microphone just through my iMac. So I think it'll sound fine, but but if, if it doesn't sound good, it's not Kristen's fault. It's my fault. Okay. So you can keep that in there. <laughs> okay. All right. And so we are a horror movie podcast. We do a deep dive into a horror movie. And then next week, I will tie a true crime to it. And this one is pretty easy. I'm kind of excited. Yeah. It's actually well, based on a real person. Okay. Good. Because I, I was reading that. And I thought, well, I should just stop. Because if she doesn't do this one, then I don't know what she's doing. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, you never know. Sometimes I go out of the box, but right. but I think I'll do this one because it's pretty interesting. This movie came out in 1955. Yeah, this is our clearly our earliest uh, movie by far, beating Psycho. And uh, I guess Psycho was previously the oldest movie, right? Yeah, I think so. So yes, this definitely tops it. And so we're doing Night of the Hunter. But so I guess before we get started on that, uh, what you've been watching? First of all, I was considering talking about Hamilton, but I thought that was just derail us for an hour. <laughs> um, so um, I decided to talk about, uh, have you seen The OA? The OA? No. Yeah. It's not like a There's young adult letters. thing? No. Oh, okay. I can see why you would think that. Though. It does have a very young adult fantasy vibe. Um, but no, not at all. It's fully adult. Um, it's on, came out on Netflix about five years ago, and they've only done two seasons. I think it's been canceled. Uh, but it's a, kind of a combination between maybe Loss and The Leftovers what you know i mean really that's the same guy but, um <laughs> but it has it's very very strange show very uh very sci-fi but also um could be just sort of straight up drama too hmm. um the premise is there's a woman that's been missing for seven years she was previously blind uh she comes back from somewhere and suddenly you know she she can see again and no one knows where she's been and that's how the sort of story starts that sounds very lame as i say it but uh, it's the weirdest, strangest show of that I've seen in a few years, and it's fantastic too. Uh, it has um, Riz Ahmad in it. Oh, okay. It has, it has um, who's in the night from, of? Yes, but not yeah, the so night not, of the hunter. No, he was not born. Um, it has Phyllis from The Office. Oh, funny. <laughs> uh, that's really all we need to get into. But it's a really good, great show. It's kind of a cult classic. So I've heard people talking about it, um, and it's only like six episodes per season, maybe eight. And then you're out. Oh. Uh, so I highly recommend it. It's um, it's just a crazy banana show. And after the first episode, you'll, you'll maybe the second episode, you'll be hooked. Okay. So the OA. Okay. What have you been watching? Well, Brian and I have done our recent rewatch of The Office, The American oh, Office. Phyllis. Yeah. So we did that earlier in this year. We probably watch it every year, every two years. And so now we're back to, we're watching The British Office, which is our favorite show, probably, 
if we had to pick. And so this is probably like our, I don't even know, eighth time rewatching it. Because the British office, if you don't know, is just two seasons of about six episodes each. And then they have a final like Christmas special. So it's not a lot to get through. Unlike The Office, if you try to watch The American Office, there's nine seasons or whatever. But The British Office, if you haven't seen it, it's really perfect. I don't think I've seen it since we lived together. Okay. Honestly. Very British. So a lot of the... It's taken us a, probably about the third rewatch or so until we finally got... We had to look up a lot of the references and a lot of the words they use because you don't get it. And they talk very fast. But it's just... It's so well done. It's so good. And then the what what they pack into... Just two seasons and a special is pretty amazing, especially. And if you like the American office, you can see, you know, where they got ideas for different episodes all the way through all the seasons. I mean, they really go back to that source material, which is really great. They'll take one little thing that was in the British office and turn it into a great episode of the American office because we love both. But we saw the British office. I didn't realize they liked the British office better, though. Well, I think it's just one of those things that it's like when we saw it before the American office came out and we loved it. And it's very special to us because like when the American office came out, I think my sister was saying that Jim and Pam reminded her of me and Brian. Like we met at work. We kind of had like this friendship and we now have this relationship. And we would always say that we were Tim and Don, who was from the the British office as their counterparts. And so it meant a lot to us because we felt like very connected to those characters at that time when we first started dating, you know. That it just makes it more special to us, I guess, you know. Is the is the British one on Netflix or how do you watch it? We watched it on the DVDs. DVD. <laughs> okay, so a long time ago, <laughs> we used to have to put these shiny circles I bet into the... I bet that's literally the last time I watched it was on your DVDs at that... Um, Probably the same ones. Yeah, at the Rose Circle maybe or wherever we were. Oh, right. But the DVDs are great, too, because they have all those special features and they have a behind the scenes documentary that's so great. And it, it just when you think about the fact that what Ricky Gervais and Stephen Merchant did with this show was revolutionary, we wouldn't have obviously the American office, but we wouldn't have Parks and Rec or even Modern Family, yeah. you know, how that's filmed with talking heads. I mean, no one would have I don't know if anyone else would have thought, let's make a sitcom, but not make it a sitcom and do it in a documentary style. I just don't. It's just brilliant. It's funny you say that because I've been rewatching Parks and Rec on Netflix because it's just an easy show to watch during dinner. Like it is. Home. And I just forgot how just hilarious it is. I mean, it, it's yeah, it's hilarious. I find that uh, it's weird watching it with Adam Scott now because I'm so used to Adam on the podcast that we listen right. to. Are you <laughs> right now? It's a Talking Heads podcast, right? But, um, I, I can't. Uh, right now, it's is that your Talking you? Head talking to me? Your is that your? <laughs> <laughs> Um, well, if you don't know, they did a podcast called Are You Talking You Two to Me, which is it's Adam Scott and... No, and, wait. It was You Talking You Two to Me, right? Then it became Are You Talking <laughs> R-E-M Re-Me? I don't know. <laughs> and now... <laughs> Google Adam Scott and You Two and you'll find it. But it's Adam Scott and Scott Aukerman from Comedy Bang Bang. And I guess they're buddies and they like You Two and they started doing a podcast about You Two, which is... Half the time, not even about YouTube. It's just no. more of a po- funny po- comedy podcast. The one I listened to recently was songs about buildings and food. Yeah, that was a good one. 36 minutes in, they still hadn't even mentioned Talking Heads, <laughs> right. but it was so good. So funny. So what are we uh, What are we drinking? Why don't you go ahead and say what you got? Okay, so um, as usual, I was light on ideas because there's only so many you know, uh, drinks at Publix, let's be honest. <laughs> 
and we're watching a fairly obscure cult classic, let's say, movie from 1955. A lot of people haven't seen called The Night of the Hunter. It takes place in West Virginia, uh, but there's not really a lot of drinking in it. I mean, I guess there's Uncle Birdie or whatever. I really wish you'd go into Publix or whatever and say, like, look, so we're watching Night of the Hunter. It's a 1955. <laughs> right this way, sir. <laughs> <laughs> but I did find a beer that I've actually had several times before. It's one of my favorites anyway. It's called Two-Hearted Ale. It's an American IPA. The label is just a, and Chris can see this, but you guys can't. It's just a, it's just a bass fish in a river. And I just got to thinking about, you know, the whole two hearts uh, kind of vibe, you know, with the, the metaphor of the two hands, the love and the mm-hmm. hate. And there's also the, the sort of, you know, it's actually a beer out of like Michigan or something, but we just, you know, it does have an Ohio River vibe. Okay. Uh, maybe an Appalachian vibe. Sure. It's just very Southern uh, and slightly Gothic. So it got that. I like it. And it's also delicious. So two-hearted ale is made by Bells. Well, I'm having probably the furthest thing from what someone would be drinking in 1955. I have a truly blueberry and acai hard cider. Nice. If you were to... Oh, truly. Yeah, okay. if you were to hand that to Robert Mitchum, he would probably throw it back in your face. Yeah, well, he wouldn't drink anything because he's... Oh, that's right. He's that was not, my, my other idea is that we would just not drink anything because oh, right. he was inspired by the, the, the sort of Puritan guy. Right. But I thought that's just no fun. <laughs> well, know. I told you I also looked up dandelion wine. That's yeah. what he says uh, his wife got drunk on. And you can make it from dandelions. We'll have to maybe try it next spring. How did people figure that out? I I guess they were desperate. They were like, this has got (laughs) to make me drunk, right? (laughs) Right. Life is hard on this farm. All right. So like we had said, this movie is 1955, directed by Charles Lawton, who only directed this and maybe one other thing. No, this is actually his only movie. Oh. I heard that name. I thought, why do I know that name? And so he was actually a big actor. Right. Yeah. He was an actor. He was in Spartacus. Which is where I mostly know him from. He won an Oscar. For that? No, not for Spartacus, but he was nominated for a few things and then he won. And so he decided to do this movie, uh, but it was kind of a, they call it a flop. I don't know what that means in 1955. I I assume it means the same thing now. Like, no one saw it. (laughs) And so he was pretty dispirited and didn't really do anything else. But it was written, at least in part, there's some controversy about it, but but written by James Agee. Right. Agee? How do you say that? I think it's Aggie. James Aggie. He was born in Knoxville. I didn't know that. He had written several things, but uh, this is he actually wrote this right before he died. He died the same year this came out, so he never got to see it. Um, oh. He actually won the Pulitzer Prize a few years after this movie, posthumously, for a novel he wrote. But he wasn't, mm-hmm. um, according to my internet deep research, You know, he wasn't really successful in his life. He was one of those authors that was successful after he died. Mm-hmm. Um, including this movie. Like, this movie, no one saw it when it came out. And then years later, people thought, well, even the script was uh, sort of a masterpiece for its time, or, or at least unconventional, which I think we we agree on. Um, but there's some controversy about how much of it is even his script, because apparently the director hated him and hated the script and made a lot of changes. Well, um, and it's based on a novel Yeah. by Davis Grubb. Right, and Stephen King, I've seen, uh, he's talked about the novel before. It's apparently something he read when he was like a little kid as a big influence on oh, his interesting. mind. And, <laughs> and it was um, by the same name, Night of the Hunter? I think so, yeah. Um, I never heard of it. And we'll get into this next week, but I mean, it was inspired by this serial killer, Harry Powers, who Robert Mitchum's character is Harry Powell. Right. See? Oh, is it Harry? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> really 
It's funny. I was trying to. I've actually. Um, I've never seen this movie before until you recommended it. I'm curious why exactly you chose it, but we'll get into that. Okay. Uh, and I don't mean that's like a bad thing. I'm just honestly <laughs> curious. Okay. But I realized I the reason I've heard about this or know about it is uh, particularly the images with the two hands. Is there's one of those time life books that I used to check out. <laughs> there's so many of them, but we'll, 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 we'll talk about the one about serial killers mm-hmm. that I used to check out in high school. Well, there's another one on horror movies. Which why is that a thing? But I remember it being just a time life series on classic movies and i guess there's one on horror movies interesting i remember there being a whole article by the night of hunter and i used to read it like over and over again because i was just bored in study hall and that's how oh i'd never seen the movie i kind of thought i had mm-hmm. but i just realized oh i just read that article over and over when i was like 16 <laughs> why i chose this movie is there there's like a handful of classic movies that my dad and my mom always kind of watched or if they were on amc or whatever we would watch them And, you know, that was like Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. We watched all the time. Cool Hand Luke. And one of them was this, Night of the Hunter. We'd also watch, like, my dad was really into John Wayne. So we'd watch a lot of John Wayne movies. And I think this one stuck with me because it was one of the first, I mean, horror type movies that I'd ever seen. And I just thought it was so creepy with the children. And, like, I guess identified as a kid in that with, like, that fear and it stuck with me for a long time and I've just always really liked it but I hadn't watched it watched it and like really thought about what I was watching until I watched it this time you know so Uh there was so much more to it that I didn't I couldn't really understand as a kid or even a teenager I would hope not (laughs) (laughs) there's a lot going on for sure in the best possible way ultimately I don't know if I could tell you like, what is this movie, like, about? And I put that in quotes, you know, because there's just so many... Sometimes I'm like, is this a comedy? Um, it's definitely a horror movie, um, but it's tonally... And I guess that's a drink. You know, I said tonally. <laughs> but it's definitely kind of all over the place. And not, like, in a scattershot way. I mean, I mean it's intentional, but but that's one thing I just wasn't expecting from a 1955 movie. I just assumed at least, if nothing else, it'd be sort of a straight-up thriller. Well, I think that's also why it wasn't really popular, because the studio didn't promote it at all apparently they, they put nothing into promoting it because even at 1955 i guess the idea of this serial killer type character who's also pretending to be a preacher that wasn't something that they wanted to really promote and so then when it was a bomb again because it wasn't promoted then charles lawton i think he didn't want to direct again and it really like made him sad yeah i did think it was funny that the, the studio one of their big notes was well you can't really be a preacher and because in the book he's oh. explicitly a preacher oh okay and so okay i guess charles lawton's idea was well he just says he's a preacher and the studio's he like, just says Fine. he's a preacher <laughs> <laughs> uh, but i i thought he was a preacher i didn't realize that there was even that distinction made there must be some line dialogue or something that explains it or i guess they say well he's not an ordained preacher he's just okay. a, self, a self-ordained preacher okay. so that's okay that's kind of funny well i think um, i also was also always just drawn to write a Robert Mitchum, like he's just so interesting to me. He's he's obviously the the one of the main characters in Cape Fear, yeah. the original one, which we watched a lot too with Gregory Peck. The real, yeah, I was really tempted to do a Cape Fear double feature after. Yeah, um, we might need to do that. that. I guess I always thought Robert Mitchum was very handsome. Oh, okay, well I'm glad I'm not the only one because I, <laughs> I, I like that rugged kind of look he's very that charming. he has. Yeah, he's very charming. Uh, I can't think of a contemporary that really looks like that. I mean, I. Who would I compare him to like today? I'm not really sure, but I know because um, he's definitely unconventional. Like a Hemsworth, looking. maybe even that's too... in ten years. I don't know. <laughs> in ten years, but I, I mean, and he's a very prolific actor. 
like in the 40s and 50s where they just cranked movies out. I mean, I was looking at Robert Mitchum's first year in 1944. He was in 20 movies. And he yeah, they were was... bit they were bit parts, but is it just that they were cranking them out so much or there just weren't as many actors that were around? I think a little bit of both and I mean, I think back then the studio system where you're, you know, you're basically contracted to do kind of whatever they want you to do. Um, so mm. that was probably part of it. But Shelley Winters too, I haven't seen a lot of movies with her in them. Yeah, I mostly know her from Lolita, you know, the mm. Kubrick yeah. version. Um, that's another one where I just, I guess because of her age, we mostly know more the name. Yes. But this one, I mean, it's, it's kind of amazing to me that this is this guy's, I mean, Charles Lawton's first director, um, first time as director, given that it's so unusual looking and so creative. Uh, you know, even the, you know, the cinematography, which I know he doesn't do that, but I mean, he's obviously in charge of it somehow. And, um, you know, all the, all the performances are like really great. Uh, even the kids, you know, which usually, yeah, especially back then. Yeah. Um, so we kind of just nailed it, I think. And, and the fact that he had the bravery to like make such an unconventional movie, unless it was, maybe he thought it was conventional when he just like <laughs> a weird guy. I don't know, but, but there's some moments in the movie where like, uh, you know, my, I won't see my jaw drop cause it's kind of dramatic, but I mean, I was really stunned. Like, you know, the, the scene on the river, which we'll talk about where the kids are having their sort of dream river passage, you know, with all the animals in the foreground, like wasn't expecting anything like that. You know, that's like something out of a modern uh, indie movie almost. Or, uh, of course, the image of uh, Shelley Winders underwater. Oh, my gosh. So stunning. The studio also thought it was too artsy. I can see that, yeah. And then that's not exactly what the production company wanted to promote well, that's, i mean i think that's what's so successful about it though is like i, I get why they would have that critique it, it, it definitely has what i would call some more ambitious <laughs> shots and themes but at the same time it completely sticks within its sort of homespun kind of fairy tale tone it's, i don't think it's pretentious at all like it it definitely plays like this sort of a, a yeah film, yeah not to shit on mandy which is the movie we did last time but mandy. that movie <laughs> seems more like someone who's a bit pretentious and I'm going to make a movie yeah, be an and I'm going to make it yeah. so beautiful and artsy. And again, I think we ended up saying we enjoyed Mandy, but I think this is kind of the opposite where it, it's arty, but it kind of seems like there's heart to it somehow. Right. Yeah. That's a good point. Um, like the image with a uh, little Harper, Shelley Winters underwater is like 10 times more powerful than anything in Mandy and not again, no, no disrespect to Mandy. It's just yeah. a great image, but it also has so much kind of, meaning behind it and you like feel bad for it and like you know mandy herself who is set a fire you don't really feel much of anything but i love the opening credits in this movie i mean because it uh i mean it's miss cooper like in the yes in the galaxy <laughs> or talking head uh talking to these kids that you don't even know who they are yeah yet. it's just um, there yeah the, even it starts out like already surreal she's telling them a bible story i guess that you know think about it, it does set this tone like you know is this a fairy tale of some sort is this like a bedtime story i mean that kind of we think about a lot of the images of the movie, like where things don't quite look right. Like they look like obvious props, like even some mm-hmm. houses or like cutouts or scenery. That kind of makes more sense with the sort of maybe vibe they're going with. Upsetting because they cut from like a Bible story to kids finding a dead woman's body. And that's like the the opening scene. Yeah. So I thought that was like the end and we're going like, to we're like cutting back to like. All, yeah. But that, that yeah. actually is something that happened before. Like that's how. He's killed someone else. I thought that was going to be Mrs. Uh, right. Yeah. Harper's and then there's a huge musical cue. And we cut to Robert Mitchum 
driving his car and talking to God about murder. And it looks beautiful. I mean, I, I love all those old rear projection shots they used to do, like when people are driving cars. Just another way right. to tell. Right. He's really not driving anywhere. It's obviously a background image. But, you know, Quentin Tarantino likes to do that now and um, some other directors. But just from the get-go, the, the use of the black and white, like it's uh, probably maybe it was just the HD version I saw, but it's kind of just one of the best-looking black and white movies I think I've ever seen. Oh, maybe great. Outside of, like, outside of Psycho or something. But he's talking to God about murder, saying he he hates women. I mean, he pretty much says he wants to kill them all, which is a, a very serial killer thing. A lot of them have like this hatred for it towards women. And as we've discussed, a lot of the times it goes back to their mothers. So I'm sure once we get into this serial killer it's based on, there's got to be some mommy issues. They cut to him watching a burlesque dancer filled with rage. I mean, it's it's really upsetting. Yeah, and, uh, and it's interesting they did this and Cape Fear. I guess Cape right. Fear was later, maybe, right? I mean, I'm not sure, but... Cape Fear was 1962. Okay, so this movie has been around for a few years. Yeah. And he's arguably, I mean, as, as much as a misogynist and a serial killer as he is, he's, he's oddly charming, though, in those scenes, too. Like, he has this sort of pleasant kind of demeanor just sort of bopping along uh. yes he's just kind of bopping along he seems to be enjoying the weather out on a drive but i think that's also one of the this particular type of serial killer kind of also like hh holmes who is a kind of an, an attractive guy who that would have been a good good serial killer to do because he also would lure in women and and do life insurance scams sorry now i'm getting into the we won't get into the real serial killer yet you have to wait till next week but because, you know, people who are quiet, they'll say, like, oh, that guy must be a serial killer. It's like, well, no, it's probably going to be the the John Wayne Gacy guy who's out doing birthday parties with kids and bowling with his neighbors, you know. They're the ones that a lot of the times are hiding their secrets. So they have to work harder to hide all of this fucked upness that they have. <laughs> it does make sense to me, though, that, that Stephen King read this at a young age because the, this character is... Uh, like you can see that in like a lot of his evil characters, this sort of very chatty kind of outgo, like Randall Flagg from The Stand and all the other versions of him and his other books. Mm-hmm. Very much this guy, uh, like just very charming, kind of evil guys that could be you know politicians they wanted to. Interesting. Just, um, so I can see if, if he read this when he was like eleven, that definitely probably informed his version of like the bad guy. Right. Because uh, because I remember watching it. I think well, I mean, all of last night. <laughs> it, it did strike me as like this is very much like a Stephen King character uh, yeah yeah but that's what we see like uh of course this reminds me of charlie from lost i do want to go back through all these episodes and see how many times i reference lost remember i went on lost um charlie's riding on his knuckles oh yeah yeah well i think i feel like anytime even me like only never never having seen this movie anytime anybody writes on knuckles i do think of this because i, I think it is a, fair, a fairly well known yeah i don't know how this movie got made honestly i mean there's <laughs> I mean, there's so much in it. Well, I think it was a lot of, like, Charles Lawton, he was a prolific actor. He was, he'd been nominated for Oscars, so maybe he had the connections and then he was able to somehow put it together. But I'm glad it was made. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I, I know they used to have the, the Hayes codes where you couldn't do certain things in movies, and maybe this is slightly after that. But I feel like it breaks pretty much all those rules, you know, threatening kids, you know, sexual, and people listen to the same bed. Uh, right. I'm making a lot of hand gestures, I know, because I think this is going to make it on the podcast, <laughs> and it's not. Um, 
I bet it influenced like a lot of other creatives, I guess is my point. You know? Hitchcock certainly probably saw this and was influenced by it, maybe. Okay, so Robert Mitchum, who plays Harry Powell, yeah, I call he gets Reverend arrested. Howell. So what are we going to call him? Reverend Howell. All right. He gets arrested for driving a stolen car, and he gets thrown in for 30 days. Um, but that's how you first find out that he's, you know, no good, I guess. Right. Uh, and then at the same time, we meet the kids, um, John and Pearl. Mm-hmm. Uh, which, if you want to talk about how adorable Pearl is for a while, that's that's fine. I just, oh my gosh, she, so she really is. Yeah. She's a good little actress too. Um, I know. That's like, um, I mean, some of the scenes you can really tell that the kid was kind of acting outside of what was happening. You know what I mean? Like it just it was kind of strange reactions to things. But for 1955, it was pretty good acting for for kids. Yeah, I mean, I guess for her, maybe you just have to assume she wasn't acting. I'm sure her stage mom was off screen, <laughs> like making funny faces or something but so they're outside playing and their dad pulls up and he they're like daddy yeah he's like guess what (laughs) (laughs) uh john immediately notices that he's bleeding his dad's holding a gun he's got a lot of money and And bags of money yeah and he tells them that he's wearing a bandit mask (laughs) (laughs) and he tells he's got a tommy gun and he's like i got ten thousand dollars in cash which of course i had to look up which is almost $100,000 today. So that's a big really? chunk that he has stolen from the bank. And so we don't see, I couldn't remember after seeing this scene, if you see where he put the money. But they don't tell you. Yeah, I kind of thought I missed that too. Now, I, I already knew where he put the money. So I wasn't really paying attention. But then I rewatched some of it. And I noticed that they don't tell you where he puts it, which I thought was pretty clever. Yeah, in fact, when Robert Mitchum says later that he heard that he threw it in the river, I'm like, oh, that's what he did. <laughs> <laughs> like, I didn't know that he was lying. John is probably, how old do you think? 10? It looks like he's about, yeah, 10. And he tells him to promise him to take care of his sister and never tell where the money is hid. That's some heavy shit yeah. to drop on a kid. And, yeah, and why does he tell this to his wife? Who's, he says know. that she won't be able to handle the money. Which, which there's oh, a lot of that misogyny and stuff in this, but that is of the time. Yeah. I mean, the movie, in a way, kind of supports it. I mean, <laughs> yeah, she's not that's the strongest true, that's character. True. So she's easily brainwashed. <laughs> yeah, that's true. And the cops show up and arrest him. And so he gets thrown into jail with our buddy, Robert Mitchum. And he, yeah. so we learned that he killed two people. I guess trying I to rob the bank. I do love how Robert Mitchum like pops in a frame there, like in the <laughs> like, jail cell. Like he pops down from his bed. He's like, "Hello." <laughs> yeah. Couldn't help it over here that you were dreaming about where you put the money, which is that's how that yeah. works. I mean, it's, it's bits like that that made me kind of think: Is this kind of a comedy? Like, like it's halfway. Like, I mean, it's just so over the top. But anyway, was it kind of remind you of when we watched the movie about the Texarkana murders? What was that called again? The town that dreaded sundown. Yes, does it kind of remind you of the town that dreaded sundown? Where you? I don't think I don't think it's that all over the place. I mean, I think this 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 is this is much more controlled. Right, and he's trying to get him to like unburden himself, I guess, by telling him where the money is. Yeah, I, I, I didn't really write much about that scene, but it did have a slight vibe of some jailhouse sexiness going on there. I thought, are they going to start <laughs> roughhousing or what? Like, uh, and then later when he doesn't want to sleep with a wife, I'm like, oh, What's going on with that? interesting. Yeah. Just throwing yeah. it out there, you know, my latent gay reading <laughs> every single movie I watch. <laughs> okay, so then when we cut back to the poor kids, you know, their dad has been arrested and taken away. And there's some very coordinated bullying going on through these kids. <laughs> That's when the, 
yeah, that's when the full-on sort of, sort of Southern Gothic vibe really clicked for me, like the kids <laughs> singing the Hangman song. But I also love that Pearl was like, I love this song. Like she just, it was very sweet and innocent. I know, that, that's to me seemed like something out of like a Flannery and Connery story. Then I realized, oh, well, it doesn't need to be. It's out of a contemporary classic Southern Gothic story of its own. So, but so then uh, Robert Mitchum, you know, comes to town and uh, he has that great entrance, if that's the right word, where his uh, the kids are in the oh, bedrooms yes. at night and the shadow kind of announces itself in the in the bedroom. It's kind of yeah, like well, so John is telling almost, Pearl a story, and yeah, you see the shadow of Harry's hat on the wall. And then John sees him outside, just kind of standing by the streetlight. Yeah, next to this weird streetlight. That I mean, the whole thing looks like you know, like almost like a Romania, so right? Like some slightly removed reality, um, except I think done more successfully in, in this version. I think you know, just without the sort of heightened. The mom is having to work at an ice cream shop. It's called Spoons, Kristen. <laughs> but that's actually their last yeah, name. Mr. Mrs. Spoon. Yeah, yeah Icy Spoon. And whatever his name is, Spoon. Oh, I like Mrs. Spoon, yeah. She has a lot of good wisdom. Intercut with... Train arriving and... Yes, yeah. which is which is really yeah, even cool. Even that was fairly uh, modern. Like, uh, they don't quite do it seamlessly, which makes me like even more. Like, it's slightly, right. uh, slightly out of tempo almost, if that makes sense. Um, mm-hmm. But then uh, he arrives to town and then uh, he's actually at the dining room. <laughs> Right. With, with uh, you know, Mrs. Mrs. Spoon and the daughter. So he's found them pretty, I guess it's a small town. Probably didn't take him too long to find them. And then so he's introduced himself. Everybody's already in love with him. Willa herself seems slightly reserved at first. So credit to her. You know, who's the stranger that's holding my daughter? They notice he has the love hate on his hands. I read right. Hal's hands. And he gives that great speech, which is, I guess, iconic at this point. I've never seen it, but I've just heard about it right. time and time again. Or is that based on a real thing? or? Um, I, that's a good question. But I love the difference between when he tells the story this time about Cain and Abel and how the hate and the love are both represented. And Mrs. Spoons just falls for it. Just like, oh, that's beautiful. And I love how that's um, shown later. Miss Cooper, yeah. Yes. When she's just, just like, don't give no, shit. no. Well, there's also this idea that Miss Cooper is you know, generally uh, religious or her theology is more maybe more sound than his is, and she's able to kind of see right through this sort of this nonsense. Right. Whereas the others are sort of more taken in by him, this sort of cult of personality that he has. He can say anything. He's just so charming um, and so kind of outgoing and different. And he has that whole get up with his outfits and says he's a preacher. And, well, yeah, he um, says that he met their dad in prison, but he says that he was there preaching to right. the inmates. And so that's how they met. There's also another character we didn't talk about, which is their uncle. Yeah, I don't know if that's really their uncle or if he just calls him uncle. Like, maybe it was his dad's friend. Seems like it was a co-worker of his dad's on the docks. But he's um, useless. Yeah, it doesn't, doesn't no. contribute much. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, and I guess, you know, we should talk about the context. You know, kind of, you know, this is supposed to be West Virginia in the 30s, mm-hmm. meaning the Depression. So I think this idea, part of the idea is like everyone's kind of in the same boat a little bit, so to speak. Like everyone's just completely hopeless, adrift. Um, you know, at some point you you get all the kids sort of running right. around the countryside at like like urchins, which is what really happened. I'm not diminishing that, but but I think that explains a little bit, um, Uncle Birdie. It's not that he's particularly helpless. It's that it's maybe it's just more a comment on sure. the times they're in. Well, yeah, yeah, and it was interesting when I was reading about. Like Robert Mitchum, the actual person, 
Robert Mitchum's dad died when he was a baby, and then he started getting into trouble. And then in the 30s, he started um, hopping on railroad cars and getting different jobs in different places. And then he ended up in Savannah, and he got arrested. And, and then he ended up riding the rail to California and lived out there with his sister and got into movies. My life just, yeah, my life I know, sucks. that sounds like, I mean, it sounds tough, but that does sound like so much more interesting. And then you get into the movie yeah, business in the 30s. <laughs> Who do you think Shelley Winters looks like? What modern actress do you think she, she looks like? She reminds me a little bit of like a younger Jean Smart. I could see that. You know, I thought she looked like Brie Larson. Yeah, no, yeah, that's a better answer. Uh, without the sort of quippy attitude, but, but yes, she's interesting looking. Uh, in this one, they have her um, definitely sort of playing the sort of, I mean, like everyone else in the movie, a little bit downbeaten, down downcast kind of, yeah, you know, just beat up character. But uh, she's very uh, striking looking for sure. So then they all go to like a picnic, and what does Icy Spoon say? Do you remember? She uses a term. I know she gives. Oh, Shilly Shally. Yes. And, see, and Stephen King read this when he was ten. <laughs> you're right so that's where that probably came from that's so funny she says don't she says stop shilly shallying around i was so excited i almost fell on my couch it's like (laughs) this movie went from a nine to a ten at that point so maybe we can name this episode don't shilly shally part two (laughs) i see is talking to some people around like the buffet table and she says something about she just lies there and think canning is she talking about sex yes that is so funny i know First of all, how that line get into a 1985 movie, I don't know. I guess it's slightly, it could be interpreted some other way. I don't know what other way, but um, I mean, if that was a line in the movie today, you have no uh, dispute about what she was talking about. Right. Um, but also, it, it does suggest, is this the idea that women are supposed to get pleasure out of sex? Like, is she saying that's like a good thing or is she like giving shade to Mr. Spoon? Oh, I, can't tell. I think she's kind of saying that you just have to... That's part of your job as a woman. So when you combine that speech with his blockbuster speech on their wedding night, River and Pals, you kind of maybe get some different ideas what this movie is ultimately about. Yeah. Uh, which is maybe a satire. I mean, I hate to say every movie watches a satire, so it's <laughs> not. But, but definitely uh, a discussion of sort of how women are uh, viewed in the in the marital space. Right, I, guess. Right. I don't know. Very interesting. He comes home and says to John... Now, listen, I need to talk to you. And I was like, well, surely it's not going to be that they're getting married. Oh, yeah, that's what it is. They are getting married. Yeah. And I guess at that time in 1954, this was in the 30s. So that would be expected. But can you imagine just marrying someone that you just met? Now there's all these great uh, reality shows about marrying someone you just met. We watch it like it's entertainment. But that was something back then that you, you did to survive. Yeah, I mean, and if you think about her situation, she has a job by herself, but she's caring for these two kids. Her dad just died. She doesn't know this ten thousand slash hundred thousand dollars really even exists. Right. She thinks this is a rumor. So John could have prevented this maybe just by trying to confide in his mother. I think it's for looks too. I mean, it's it's a bad look to have your mom yes. working a part time job yeah. at an ice cream shop. Yeah, although I'm not sure what value they think he can bring. He doesn't seem to have a job either. He's just he's an yeah. itinerant. A working preacher so poor willa comes in thinking that she's going to be doing her wifely duties and she's kind of into it too i mean yeah well i mean it's been a while right <laughs> yeah and he's good looking yeah it's charming doesn't slap her in the face while she's sleeping <laughs> not yet <laughs> oh gosh uh so poor willa he refuses to have sex with her starts saying some shit about how their spirits are blended together now 
Uh, well, here's the quote okay. if you want. So you're right. He's basically like slut shaming her mm-hmm. for, you know, because this is the scene where she's approaching him and, and they're, and they're on their honeymoon, I guess, you know, in their, in their bedroom. And she's, you know, dressed in her nightgown and he's just all tuckered away, right. <laughs> ready to go to bed. <laughs> Uh, and so he says to her that, you know, marriage to be represents the blending of two spirits in the sight of heaven. The body was meant for children, not meant for the lust of men. Right. Which is some pretty strong stuff to hear on your wedding night. And she immediately knows, oh, shit, because she starts moaning like just she just knows, I think, that what she's done has been a mistake. And this is going to ha- going to be how it, it is now for her. And then she starts blaming herself immediately kind of wonder how bad her first marriage was too right and that guy was obviously a bit of a right. bad seed i mean he's robbing and murdering people so maybe she's like god damn it again yeah and then so maybe she's just like okay let's it escalates very quickly because she immediately is becomes a fire and brimstone preacher's wife yeah yeah which uh i was a little surprised by because uh, based on the first few scenes maybe just the first scene where they meet she seemed again more reserved you're not really you know what's this guy about but uh, after they get married, she is right, right there by side and a strange torch party right. scene they have on their porch where all the people show up with torches. I mean, I'm not sure what exactly is going on there. Are they having I a am not sure. What is, what is the speech? Where, who are they speaking to? Talking about how she is essentially to blame for her her former husband's right. misdeeds because he did everything for uh, her perfume right. and for her face paint, uh, which is uh, clearly that's, his, that's the husband's mm-hmm. language. You know, it's very old timey and uh, kind of Puritan, but um, it's, it's weird seeing her, that come out of her mouth. Like she just sort of accepts all the blame for not just herself, but everything her husband did. But so then we see Pearl is making paper dolls out of cash. And that, I guess this is the first time you realize where the money is hidden. John comes home and finds her making paper dolls and cutting up the money. And he has to stuff all that money back into her doll. Yeah, that was a pretty sus- suspenseful scene right. because the reverend is right behind them and he's sort of walking up to him. And there's that great shot, too, where he says, like, you know, come to the poor children. And you just kind of, I don't know, there's something about him. They just show him from, like, the waist down, which is such, like, a child's eye right, view of, right. of the man. And uh, it's just a little disturbing for a lot of reasons. But he, he spends a little bit of time trying to sort of coax them into telling him where the money mm-hmm. is. Uh, and then kind of abandons that and just goes to straight up threatening them. Yeah, I, I do love. I do love. I mean, I think it's funny that he just is so mean to them. <laughs> I mean, he just keeps asking John where the money is, and then John tells his mom that he's asking, and then she takes the reverend's side until the mom walks up to the house and actually overhears him, like pretty much telling Pearl, "I'll break your arm if you don't tell me where the money is," and threatening her. He says, "I'll rip right. your arm off." <laughs> And then he calls her a disgusting little wretch. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> She's four. <laughs> but then Willa comes in and just kind of acts like she doesn't didn't hear anything. Right. But he knows that she knows. And then, then we have the great scene up in the attic room, which the way that shot is just really cool. Yeah. The, the weird sort of space dynamics. Of yeah. It. Uh, yeah. And I, I didn't see the, that coming. I didn't know he was going to just murder her. I thought maybe she got murdered at the end of the movie, if at all. Um, she's pretty much laying down with her arms crossed in bed, pretty much just like accepting this death. No, she's praying. Yeah. Uh, you have a 1965 movie where a woman is praying in bed and he just, I mean, they don't show him stab her, but they all but show him stab her. I mean, he runs right. towards her with, uh, 
Is, is that a switchblade? I mean, yeah, he has a little switchblade. It's pretty terrifying. And uh, so then we have uh, the scene where he has told people that she has, you know, run off. You know, I guess he's told mm-hmm. Mrs. Spoons, Mr. And Mrs. Spoon, respectively. Right. And they're like, oh, women. <laughs> um, but then we see, we cut to that, that great image of her in the car underwater with her sort of hair floating in the seaweed. It's so creepy. Yeah. And it's a long shot. Yeah. So I thought my mind went straight to uh, Ophelia, you know, from Hamlet, not to mm-hmm. just load up the pretension, but I couldn't help it. <laughs> um, I, that's got to be what they're going for. Cause you know, in Hamlet, you know, Ophelia drowns herself and there's that image from the, the play and all the you know productions of it where she's sort of floating the stream with all the petals around her. There's no petals in this, but there's the seaweed and the, you know, Ophelia always represents sort of the mad woman, sort of driven mad. Yeah, I just have to imagine that that was a, a note, like, okay, we're going to have a full-on Ophelia right. drown scene. Because uh, if my mind went there, and I haven't read Hamlet in years, but I've, I've, that image is very universal. And I always mm-hmm. love it because it's always so loaded. And you also see this, the uh, slit in her neck. Oh, do you? Oh, yeah. I didn't, I didn't even notice that. Uh, you know, it's a good... Actually, do you? Because later, because the, obviously the, the uncle sees her down there, which is a very clear lake. She's just right there. Yeah. That, that scene is almost even creepier when he sees her from above. Yeah. And he says later, like, he saw the slit in her neck. And now I'm wondering, did we actually see it? Or did I just hear him say that and imagine it? So I have to go back and watch that. And so he could go to the police and say something, but he is worried that he's going to be it's gonna be pinned on him, I guess. Maybe that makes more sense that maybe it is actually his brother. Because maybe he has more reservations about going because they're thinking that he killed her. Yeah, for the money, I guess, or I don't yeah, know, but he just goes know. back and drinks and look at it, looks at a picture of. I think that's more um, sort of comment than plot, if that makes sense. Like mm-hmm. Kind of commenting on these type of characters, and maybe it's not supposed to make kind of logical sense. Mm-hmm. I loved it though. So there's also a next is we have a scene where the kids are hiding in the basement, and that's really cool the way he shoots that plot in it. I mean, where they have this sort of zoom. Uh, I don't know what you call that, where the the frame kind of zooms in on the kids in the basement. There is a term yeah. for that. But anyway, the kids are hiding, hiding out down there. Uh, doesn't really take them long for them to find them. That's not really the point. I guess the point is they're just sort of desperate. Right. And the daughter doesn't really seem to understand what's going on. And then the spoons come over and just ruin mm-hmm. everything. You know, come on up, kids. <laughs> the kids have to, like, fight him off, right? Yeah, that scene is also... Uh, I mean, it's definitely intense, but there's also a slightly comedic thing to it where he's like, well, I'm bringing after him like a, like right. a Frankenstein when he's going up the steps. Uh, but he calls the little girl a spawn of a devil's own strumpet. Quite an insult. Okay, so yeah, the kids run to their uncles, but he's so drunk they can't help them. And so that's when they get into the boat that was their dad's because John is... The skiff. The skiff, yes. He's been asking if they can take the skiff out and I guess the uncle's supposed to be fixing it up, but he keeps getting drunk. He just needs a little snort, I think is what he says. And so they head off on their river journey. Yeah, not knowing that right beneath them is their dead mother, which is pretty creepy. Yes. Then the reverend also sets out. He sends a postcard to the spoons saying he's taking the kids away for a vacation. But actually, he's killed someone and stolen their horse. I guess because the <laughs> Icy says, 
I hope they're being careful that someone just got murdered and stole their horse. And they cut to, you know, Robert Mitchum riding a horse. Yeah, and that's also kind of funny, though. Like, this sort of matter of fact, like, all these terrible things just kind of happen in the Depression. Like, oh, yeah, our neighbors right, got right. murdered. <laughs> I know. I, I think the, the fact that the Depression is very much a character in this movie. We can't uh, forget that. But so can we talk about the river journey? Yeah. What a scene. I mean, like... That could be its own little short film. For that time, I feel like they're just a, a marvel of like filmmaking. Like, I, is that your ice cream truck, so by the way? Yes. Okay. Oh, you can hear yeah. it? I, mean, I can run out and get some ice cream. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so they're uh, figured out eventually. They're, they're on the Ohio River. Mm-hmm. I thought it was maybe the Mississippi, but then I realized, oh, they're West Virginia. That doesn't make sense. But apparently the Ohio River is up there somewhere. Right. Uh, but the whole scene has some sort I mean, it kind of reminded me of Huck Finn a little bit, you know, where Huck and, and Jim are going down the river and getting in adventures. Except there's this very weird, like, dreamlike, not like a nightmare, but just like very fairy tale quality to it, where the, you know, they're passing like frogs and bunny yeah, rabbits. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there's that great thing of the spider web over them, and the camera goes through, the, the camera looks through the spider web to see the boat passing mm-hmm. underneath, which must have taken forever to set up that shot. And people just didn't shoot film like that back in those days, not really, um, not in these big conventional films. Nowadays, it'd be. I mean, there's probably 30 shots like that in Mandy. For right. instance, but, um, but just so, and you have the whole time you have Pearl singing this song, uh, Pretty Fly, which was written for the movie. Oh, wow. Uh, by, the comp- yeah, by the composer. So it just kind of gives it this sort of, you know, fairy tale kind of nightmare quality. Yeah. As they're sort of just traveling through the American Depression <laughs> is the kind of best way to say it. Uh, and it means it serves no particular purpose. They could easily just show them, like, go from point A to point B. Um, but I just love the fact that they decided, no, we need to do this. We need to make it as, like, heightened and, like, uh, really get in these kids' heads. My idea is, like, it's almost like from Pearl's point of view. Like, Pearl has, like, no idea what's going on. Yeah, <laughs> really. yeah. and so she would, she would notice she? the bunnies and the toads. Yeah, it's something like a kid's movie. And, like, the whole, even the bunnies and the toads kind of gives me this whole, like, uh, rare rabbit sort of, where the, what do you call those type of folk tales? I don't know, but with the animals that talk and that type of thing. Like yes. Aesop's fables sort of vibe. Uh, um, so that, anyway, that's all there, and it sort of undercuts the sort of menacing fact that they're being tracked by, a, I guess, a Yeah, but I mean, in and, and fairy tales, uh, there's always some sort of darkness. Yeah, there's, so he's like mm-hmm. an ogre, kind of. Uh, but I just love that. You know, we're dealing with kids, so let's like, let's like be kids for 10 minutes, you know? Uh, that's anyway, great. Love it. Best scene ever do some sad trick-or-treating they have to go begging they get just a raw potato from one house yeah they spend the night in a barn and that's a really creepy scene because they keep hearing the reverend singing his yeah he has a theme song uh this is a real song it's called right. leading on the everlasting arms and that is one it's of the creepiest hymn. things that i remember from watching this as a kid too he, he sings leaning leaning and you hear him singing across the darkness, and you can see a silhouette. Yeah. Well, at least you know where he is. <laughs> right. I was wondering that, too. It's like, uh, you might want to be quiet if you want to catch the kids. But also, he feels like he is a very strong man, and he probably feels like this is no big deal to catch these kids. What do these kids stand against him? So maybe he... Yeah. Well, he probably maybe thinks it adds to their terror, which I'm sure right. does. Right. Uh... Which, yeah, it's pretty scary. And then they're finally found by Miss Cooper. They fall asleep. And she thinks she's a saint taking care of all these kids. And at first I was like, she is a bitch. She's so mean to them. Like back then kids were treated like shit. But then you realize 
she gives them a lot of tough love, but she gives them safety and she actually does care about them. You don't want to mess with Miss Cooper. So I was so excited when I read about her because this is Lillian Gish. Uh huh. Who is a she was a silent movie star. And so when I saw the name Gish, I thought, oh, I wonder if that's you know, the first Smashing Pumpkins album is called Gish. And I always wondered like what did that mean? Uh, but I, they always just have weird words right. that mean nothing. But I Googled it and I read an interview with where Billy Corgan said uh Lillian Gish wrote their town when he was a kid and it was like the biggest event uh, that they knew when he was a kid because he lived in the middle of nowhere. Or maybe it was like his grandmother or uh-huh. something. And so that's why I named the first album Gish. That's so cool. Uh, that that kind of makes sense that like tonight tonight that the video is yeah. like has that similar very silent silent movie yeah. thing yeah um but as soon as i saw that name and i, I saw her picture uh, they had the picture on wikipedia was of her silent uh silent film right, days right. which is very weird and i thought that was that's such a smashing pumpkin yes. drive and so i googled it thinking i was just being you know chris and <laughs> that was so true cool. like that's like yeah so i was delighted oh that's great so that's lillian gish she was very uh famous but this is one of her first she didn't do many uh, talkies, you know, uh-huh. as they called them. Uh, and this kind of brought her back a little bit. Uh, I mean, she did some, but she wasn't, she was mainly known for the silent film days. Like her being in this movie was a pretty big deal, apparently. Interesting. Yes. But she plays uh, Miss Cooper, who, like you said, you know, she's taken in a number of these uh, uh, depression kids, depression urchins. <laughs> <laughs> it's all very Dickensian. But this like really happened. Like kids were really, you know, when their parents couldn't, I don't know how common it was, but it was definitely an occurrence. Like right. were, if your these parents couldn't take care of their kids, or the parents went off themselves, you would have these sort of roving bands of kids yeah. in the countryside. Which I just can't believe it happened. But. And she took them in and she put them to work. She gave them a work work ethic, but then she also read them bedtime stories. And so Ruby is one of the older kids that she's yeah. taking and care Ruby, of. Yeah, Ruby likes the boys. She is immediately drawn to Mr. Uh, Reverend Howell. Yeah, which makes me wonder about him, Wait. too, if there's some sort of... Because he's really good at... Powell. I mean, she, he doesn't have to try that hard with her because she's very desperate to have any sign of love. But also, it kind of shows that he kind of knows how to groom these young kids. He's buying her ice cream and yeah, magazines. She, and she's definitely a yeah. kid, yeah. Like, in comparison to the other kids, you think, oh, well, maybe she's, like, 17 or 18. But then in comparison to him, you see that she's, you know, generally a child. She's – oh, I guess the whole point of it is that he tells him that, yes, we have these yes, two kids. Yes, So he knows where to go to find them, and he shows up. She's upset, and she's like, that guy's here, Miss Cooper. But we – I mean, we later learn that she still thinks that she's in love with him. I mean, he's definitely – I guess that's also to show that – how charming he is. But he shows up to Miss Cooper, and Miss Cooper doesn't buy any of this shit. He tries, like we had said earlier, he tries to tell the story of his hands, and she's just like, uh, so you're what, you're their dad, Cuts or uh, what? And Pearl comes out, and it's like, hey, yay! Right. But then John comes out, and John says, he's not my dad. And Miss Cooper says, right, okay, get back in the house. And she grabs his shotgun, yeah, yeah, just queen shit. Because there's that great scene where, again, like, Miss Cooper comes off at first, like, she seems, like, so harsh. She kind of has an anti M vibe. Yes. But the then she she can tell that John is not adjusting right. And she takes time with him um, alone. Where she allows him to go get two yeah. apples. Is one that... for her and one for him. Which I guess back then would be a big treat, right? Yeah. And um, yeah. And they, so they get to, they have an apple so together. kind of grabs her hand. Yeah. It's very, it was very touching. You kind of get the impression that well, maybe the mother, maybe Miss, maybe Willa wasn't that affectionate with them either. Right. Right. Like, do we know? Like. Because she kind of, 
you know, once Reverend showed up in her life, she sort of was a little bit dismissive, certainly didn't believe anything they had to say. Right. Not that she didn't love them or anything, but so I wonder if this is the first uh, adult in their lives that's really, you know, cared or nurtured them. I think so. He says, he gets on his horse and he says, I'll be back tonight. Which again, it's like, don't tell them your plan. Yeah, it doesn't work out well for him, really. But she sits (laughs) out there like a fucking boss with her shotgun waiting for him to show up. And she has the, the line... That says, it's a hard world for little things. That's great, yeah. I also wonder if that's why they showed, like, those little animals. Oh, maybe. Yeah, like, they're just like the kids. Uh, well, that whole scene is amazing. That's another great... I've never seen a shot like that. Not really, where it's like, uh, she's on a porch, or I guess it's like an outdoor porch, I'm not really sure. And then he shows up, and he's on the picket fence, out, or it's not picket fence, but whatever you call it, the, the rail fence. And uh, he starts singing his goddamn song. Right. Um, and then she actually joins in because she's... Yes. Because she's, you know, she would know that song. She's religious. Uh, she, yes. She in, but, you know, she imbues it with more uh, maybe authenticity than he does. Yes. Uh, and then the camera shows both of them. And then when John comes in the room and turns on the light or whoever it is, he disappears because the light makes... You know, the darkness go away outside so you can't see what's going out there right and the light goes back off and he's gone it's so great it's so great yes and it's one of the coolest old school sort of movie making tricks i've seen i do also think that there's some uh critique of you know and uh, so many of our movies even mandy about this you know this, this hyper masculinity yeah you know, there's a face-off with mrs cooper and uh the kids and uh reverend and uh Reverend Hal, like, uh, I guess he's in the living room at this point, and he, like, lunges up in the frame and scares him, and, and she shoots him in the chest yeah. or somewhere. And he runs off, like, just screaming yes. and, you know, runs in, hollering. Yes. And it's, like, slightly funny, and uh, but it, it seems to me like, you know, she fully defeated him pretty easily. Yes. And he's running off, you know, just screaming like a child. Uh, so he's completely, you know, emasculated at that mm-hmm. And he never... Other than his story, he, he talks a big game, but he doesn't really, okay, yeah, he murders his wife in her sleep, you know, good job, but uh, he's not really this, maybe the threatening figure he really thinks right. he is. Um, although I guess he did murder 25 <laughs> women, but uh, does that make you a man, I suppose, is kind of the point. Right, right. Definitely not. It's kind of dark at the end, I'm No, sorry. but that's, that's true. <laughs> so the police show up. I guess they have tied, they tied the murder to the reverend. They show up and arrest him. And then poor little John. Oh, my gosh. He loses it. And he has flashbacks to when his dad was arrested, I guess. And he takes all the money out of the doll and starts throwing it. You know, I think he's just done with everything. And they say that he killed 25 women. And they try him. That's what they say. Yeah. He's he's full out caught. Yeah. His plan does not work. And the whole town is there. The spoons are there. This was, a, I was kind of confused about what was happening. Mrs. Cooper takes all the kids out to eat and the town riots. Are they upset with them? Because she has to like whisk all of her kids out of there for safety. Are they just rioting against the Reverend? I think they're rioting against the Reverend, but I agree it was confusing. Yeah, I guess it wasn't so much protest. It's more like, you know, this, you know, vigilante justice right. is kind of what these people really wanted. And I guess maybe they're protesting about him actually being you know treated uh, like a you know, according to the law actually arrested and taken off in a police car and presumably getting a trial and they just want him my thought was they just want to hang him or something yeah but it seems like at the expense of having these kids being hurt in the process of this rioting 
But we see Robert Mitchum led into the jail. So I'm not sure if they what happened with that. I presume that he was just put to death. Well, we know that they like to hang people there. But speaking of, why do you think they call this movie The Night of the Hunter? And I don't have some theory of trying to trick into you. I'm generally curious. It doesn't quite track with... I mean, there's not like a single knight in the movie. There's not time. a single knight, but I mean, definitely the hunter is the reverend. He's hunting the children. And maybe the knight refers to the long night on the river or something. I think so. That's I as, that's as far as I... Do you have something deeper? Because that's as <laughs> no, far no, as I, I could go. But it does make me pause. Like, I wonder if there's some other read on it. Like, you know... If our fans have theories, please let us know on our, our many social media forums. Right. It has a very sweet ending. They have a Christmas with Miss Cooper. She gets them all gifts and then gets her a gift, which is just an apple, which represents a lot to them. <laughs> Why'd you laugh? But it's like her, it's her own apple. <laughs> he takes from the kitchen and gives <laughs> That's it back true. to her. He puts it in a, in a like, doily or something. But I mean, it's sweet, but she's like, I <laughs> She's like, what else you got? But no, it does have. I saw people online actually slightly critiquing the ending. It's like too happy. It's like, what do you want? I think they've been through enough. I mean, luckily, little Pearl yeah. may be young enough that maybe she'll be able to adjust. Mm. I mean, John's going to have some issues, man. John's got some issues, yeah. But I mean, I think the happy ending is also part of the sort of fairy tale aspect. Of right. It, there you know? has to be a happy ending. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I really hope people go watch this movie. Yeah, I would love for it to play like at a revival house or something. Like, you know, they play movies at the Alabama Theater sometimes. Yeah. Before the dark times uh, when you can go to a movie. Uh, this would be perfect for that. Yeah, I mean, I think this is one of my favorite um, discoveries. Of, I mean, I'm really glad you recommended it because I just, I just thought it was going to be, I mean, I knew it would be good, but I thought it would be just sort of a straight up, I don't know, film noirish thriller. Mm-hmm. Uh, not knowing at all, all this sort of, just everything that was. Uh, in, really in the movie you know all the the filmmaking flourishes mm-hmm. and the stories about the writer the director and the acting and uh just how kind of unique it is well good so, five stars and then of course the last line is uh the mother talking about how the children abide and they endure and that night reminds me of the little big lebowski you know the dude the, the dude abides <laughs> <laughs> i wonder if that's where they get that from maybe we can see how many movies we can try and tie to this one can we just say again how handsome Robert Mitchum is? Very handsome. Very handsome. Very rugged. Um, yes. Thank you for recommending that. That was a good choice. Good. Uh, I'm glad. Yeah. Well, next week, stay tuned and we'll talk about the actual serial killer that inspired the novelist to write the book. And that'll be interesting. Yes. And then talk to us on all our social media stuff. Absolutely. Rate, uh, subscribe, and review, too. All right. All right. Well, thank you. Good night. Bye. Bye.